This is Nursing Australia Week, a week of entertainment, education and energy for all Australian nurses. Proudly presented by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association, Health Workforce Queensland, New South Wales RDN and Northern Territory PHN. Hello. In this episode for Nursing Australia Week, we're diving into infection prevention. I'm Matt Ledger. We're speaking to expert nurse Sarah Drew from the Infection Prevention Helpline, who's going to help us ensure our infection management procedures are best practice. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming and joining Nursing Australia Week this week to give nurses across the country some of the, I guess, the detail and some ins and outs of infection prevention control smack bang in the middle of a pandemic. Hi, Susan. Um, It's nice to be joining Nursing Australia Week. And yes, we certainly are in the midst of it, aren't we, Um, as we move through this pandemic. So looking forward to having a chat today. Now, infection prevention and control is really, you know, it's everyday business as usual for nurses, whether they work in hospitals or clinics or aged care or in the community with patients. And back in the day, you know, Florence was considered totally revolutionary when in the, you know, in the 1800s, she started to talk about her environmental theory and bringing things into play like ventilation and hand washing and even distancing unwell patients from each other. But it's become part of the backbone, I guess, of the hierarchy of controls, a bit of a buzz phrase right now. Can you just run us through that hierarchy of controls a bit and and talk about how it relates to what we're doing in the way of our COVID response? Yeah, sure. And you're right that it has become the buzzword out there. And look, it can be quite complex. But when I think of the hierarchy of controls, I like to think of it as an upside down triangle. So, you know, the base is at the top and that's the stuff that we can do the, the most effective. So if we start at the top, let's think about elimination. So that is the biggest section of um, control that we can implement. And when we talk about elimination, it's exactly that. It's thinking about how can we remove a hazard Um, from the environment or from the situation that we're in. You know, when we come to COVID, we screen every patient that comes into our organisation now. Pre-COVID, think about, you know, measles. We used to isolate anyone that we Mm. thought might be infectious or potentially contaminated. And then the biggest one that we've got when we talk about elimination, and of course is more than the buzzword at the moment, immunisation. And immunisation obviously has the greatest impact when it comes to eliminating something. So our next level down is when we talk about substitution. And obviously, as we go down the controls, you know, they're getting smaller and smaller. And so that means that they're becoming less effective. So when we talk about talk about substitution, we talk around how can we replace the hazard, which you know, might not sound quite that simple um, when we talk about health. But if you think about putting that into practice, what does that mean? It means things like how do you avoid aerosol generating procedures? So currently... All right. Yeah, we're not doing spirometry we're not doing right spirometry. now in a lot of places, are we? We are not. And that's probably the biggest question that we get. Um, can I do spirometry? No. It's a high-risk procedure, particularly when it comes to aerosol generation. Your next level down is engineering controls. So when we talk about engineering controls, we think about things like isolating people from the hazard. What would that look like in your organisation? Think about things like your facility design. So do you have a separate entry and exit to your organisation? 
Um, think about things like ventilation. Ventilation is one of those things that probably, you know, pre-COVID we didn't think a lot about in primary care in particular. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, in hospitals we have, but in primary care not so much. So do you have enough air exchange? Do you Are you meeting the minimum requirements of air exchange in your organisation? Not only in the organisation, but in each of your consulting rooms where we're using older buildings for clinics doesn't always work. Yeah, that's tricky, And isn't it is it? tricky. Those older buildings where the windows are painted They're shut. the ones. Seen a few of those. So you think about ventilation in that scenario, you can't open the windows. Yet one of the most effective controls we have when we talk about ventilation is that fresh air. So are we getting that fresh air in? Then as we move down to really it's our fourth and, you know, our second to last level, and um, we talk about administrative controls. Administrative controls means things like changing the way people work. So, you know, during COVID, we've tried to have less admin staff at our, you know, front desks Mm. or in our pharmacies and things like that. So it does mean things like your policies and procedures. Have you reviewed them? Are they up to date? Does everyone know what your current policies and procedures are? Has everyone received the appropriate education and training? And is that up to date? You know, and for those people that are administering vaccines at the moment, we know that, you know, we seem to be getting updates on a daily basis, you know, with those sorts of modules. Mm. So it can become overwhelming, but it's really, really critical. And this is not just about your clinicians. Everyone in your organisation should know all of these things and should be kept up to date. And are you maintaining competencies? So are you making sure that as things are changing so quickly, that, you know, everyone is still competent with their practice. I heard of an organisation that um, has nurses working in different settings, so inside their clinic and also out on the road and in homes. And because, like you said, particularly with the vaccine modules, we're getting alerts all the time to check the updates. Love the notice board, by the way, where the updates are all in one spot. Save me trolling. Yeah, (laughs) saves me a bit of time every couple of days. Um, but, yeah, this organisation does a cross-organisation meeting every morning um, early, and so some of the people in the clinic are there, but the rest dial Fantastic. in. So the whole organisation's getting that updated information about what's happening on the ground. Because I know, like, I know you're, you're being brilliant at giving us some examples around this stuff, but it's tricky to put it into context because we have, you know, some jurisdictions where we've got a lot of community cases of COVID at the moment and some Correct. not so much. So it's different for everyone. So those updates, those internal updates are really important in case you literally have to change something, do something differently today than what you did yesterday based on transmission rates yeah. locally. So I liked that, this sort of like really quick five-minute morning meeting by the leadership that some people dial into who are not on site. Um, but everybody gets the same information at once. And that can be really valuable to save, you know, Chinese whispers and confusion. Yeah, I really like that idea. The practice that I work in, I'm there once a week, but I get lots of calls mm. during the week. So, okay. <laughs> you know, I actually really like that idea because it's also about being efficient and effective. So when we're talking about the hierarchy of controls, we're working our way down the triangle and now we're at the pointy we're, end. Well, we're at the pointy end, but we're also at the least effective end which is interesting, and that Mm. one being, surprise, surprise, is our personal protective equipment, PPE. And obviously it's one of those that, you know, we put a lot of faith in, to be honest. Um, And so, you know, it is about protecting our workers with the the appropriate PPE. 
So when we get down to this level, we are talking about things that, you know, are we donning and doffing correctly? Are we wearing the, the appropriate and correct PPE for the situation? And if we are wearing a respirator or an N95 or P2 mask, has it been fit tested? And are we fit checking every time we're applying one of these masks? In nursing and in healthcare, standard precautions are something that's, you know, it's kind of drilled into us, isn't it? Um, and you know, all the basic things that standard precautions take into play, like, you know, hand washing. And I can remember all those um, Petri dishes when we were training, yeah. you know, sticking your hand on a Petri dish and then coming back a few days later and seeing what bugs we could grow, which was and our but a very good visual. I've never forgotten it some 30 years later. How's that? But now during this pandemic, we're moving much more towards, or in most organisations, transmission-based precautions. So what's the difference between standard precautions and transmission-based precautions? Yeah, sure. So realistically, standard precautions are our basic work practices. So they're the practices that we implement on a daily basis in healthcare and really that they're what should be um, adopted by all healthcare workers and patients alike. As I've said, they should be adopted by everyone. Um, and I think we've seen that in COVID. You know, I don't think I've ever seen mm. so much of the public washing their hands. Uh, you know, our rates of influenza for various reasons, you know, were probably the lowest in history last year. And really, standard precautions have a good part to do with that. So, of course, when we talk about standard precautions, we really talk about things like performing hand hygiene and that is specifically using the five moments of hand hygiene there's some great resources and education mm -hmm. tools that we can share um, in the show notes around um, that it is the use of ppe it's the use and disposal of sharps safely it is performing routine environmental cleaning and obviously that's become a huge thing during covid that you know making sure that we're doing uh, high touch surfaces at minimum twice a day um, it's about cleaning and reprocessing of patient uh, or shared patient equipment. It's following respiratory mm -hmm. hygiene and cough etiquette, using aseptic techniques, and the handling and disposal of waste and using linen safely, which, you know, is a bit of a, a scary one during COVID. Hopefully, you know, we don't have linen in primary care organisations. So, you know, we do have, particularly in some of those states that probably haven't experienced what New South Wales and Victoria have experienced, um, still using linen. But, you know, the tip there is to make sure that it is being laundered in accordance with the standards. So now if we move to okay. transmission-based precautions, these are our second-line approach um, in infection prevention and control. And really, they're designed to target specific infectious um, agents and you know it's it is very much around reducing risk and when we talk about transmission-based precautions we do things like triaging segregating um, cohorting patients you know with the same infectious diseases that's probably you know quite appropriate with COVID now obviously we have our COVID wards we try to restrict patient movement and uh, we use enhanced PPE so you know we are now using goggles face shields, N95 masks, those sorts of things. And we have dedicated patient care equipment for episodes of care. So, you know, you're not sharing equipment and things like that. At the moment, it's required that high-touch surfaces are cleaned a minimum of twice a day and you must have a really good cleaning regime 
So, you know, if you're an exposure site and it comes then to requiring deep cleans, you know, you've got to follow your state and territory guidelines. But, you know, one of the things you need to have is that cleaning schedule so that you can show what your cleaning regime has been and that you have, you know, maintaining that cleaning schedule. Now, we've already talked a little bit about PPE, but I just wanted to, you know, run by you. There's lots and lots of conversations around um, health, how health worker transmission and health worker infection has been potentially mitigated by the correct use of PPE. What are your thoughts around those conversations at the moment? Look, PPE is essential and it does give us protection. Yeah, that's why it's in the hierarchy of controls. I think the one thing that we've got to remember here, though, is coming back to that hierarchy, you're not going to get the same effect using one piece of the puzzle. But certainly, you know, it's one of those things where if we're going to mitigate risk, we've got to use the full triangle. So we've got to consider all options. You as an individual, you as a healthcare worker, you need to risk assess the scenario that you're in as to what is the appropriate PPE you should be wearing. Big hospitals, big organisations now have procedures in, in place and they've adjusted you know, their engineering controls mm-hmm. halfway up that hierarchy. But that's not the case for, for everyone, you know, and there, there's spotters for donning and doffing PPE. How does all of that translate for nurses who might work alone, rural and remote nurses, for example? What kind of strategies can we use in unique places of care like people's homes or, or single clinician clinics? And look, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's like a lot of things that, you know, rural and remote nurses do or even nurses in primary care, you might be the only nurse on on a shift. And I think the one thing that COVID's taught us is that what we do is everyone's business. It's the whole of organisation approach. Everyone should be trained in, a, in donning and doffing PPE. You can use other people within your organisation. But think about how you can use technology as well. I think you were mentioning, Susan, that, you know, you heard a story of a practice that was using iPads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it might not be the same as having another person in the room with you, but if you're in, you know, the middle of, I don't know, the Northern Territory or Western Australia, South Australia, those bigger states, and, and you're working alone, you know, some conversation, even if it's through a screen, to say, how right. do I look? I'll turn around now. This is what I'm thinking. Do you agree? Yep. This is the, you know, when they, when you do that risk assessment of the patient, I guess, too, when you start to think about is, is the patient I'm about to go and visit or, or whose home I'm about to go into, are, are they already diagnosed as a positive case? So if they are, then the risk assessment you've done kind of raises those issues, all the things that you need to do if, if there's a high probability Correct. of transmission, where if it's a patient that you're going to see that's got a negative result today, um, and they're unlikely to be infected, then the risk assessment changes. Correct. And you can bounce that off somebody and you can use your tech for that. You can have those conversations. That's it. It's your communities of practice, isn't it? It's, you know, supporting each mm. other. And I think, you know, when you talk around risk um, and even when, you you know, you verbalise that to a colleague or a peer, it does make you think. And it makes you think outside the square. And I think that's really, really important because, you know, it's a natural human thing to protect yourself. I feel like risk assessment is something that becomes innate. What are the other things 
that we need to think about to minimise um, transmission risk of COVID-19 as we see borders opening, restrictions easing, more freedom of movement for populations even where there's still some community transmission? You know, when it comes to our organisations, you know, there is a number of things that we can do. Interestingly, I had a, a call today from someone asking if, well, now restrictions have eased, does that mean that we can not worry about social distancing? So I said, no, we do need to social distance. And for more reasons than one, because our doors are open. They're open to everyone. And in the back of our mind, we should be thinking this person is potentially a positive case. We should be screening staff as well as visitors and contractors on entrance. So it's not just our patients we need to be screening. It is also our staff, visitors and contractors. We still need to minimise people in our waiting rooms, which we've just said, and that includes that social distancing. So we need to create Mm -hmm. alternative waiting rooms where practical, you know, can you have your patients waiting in their cars? Can you put chairs outside of your organisation? Alfresco. Exactly. You can have alfresco waiting rooms. I like it. Yep. You know, we've done it for vax clinics. So, you know, why not consider it? Now, obviously, please consider the regulations of where your practice is don't, or your organisation is. Don't, you know, just willy-nilly go and put people in the car park. Can you limit your people that you have in a consultation with a patient? Can you have a dedicated or separate and separate pre- and post-waiting area for your vaccine appointments? In the event, hopefully it doesn't happen, but that you need to, you know, you are shut down due to an outbreak. Have you got your telehealth systems in place? Are they up to date? Have you got your video conferencing systems put in place? You know, a really good one is, and we know, I know we're trying to take fomites down, so things that potentially could become contaminated. But, you know, even behind your admin desks and things like that, think about displaying your hand hygiene and your respiratory hygiene, physical distancing signs. You know, all those sorts of things are really handy to have. You know, we talk around cleaning and disinfecting. So, again, making sure that you're doing the right thing there. The one thing we don't like in waiting rooms is fabric. So, you know, having those fabric chairs that can't be cleaned where possible, removing those sorts of things. You might want to go and review your ventilation. Do you know how many air exchanges that you actually have in an hour? Sarah, how do you find out? How do you work that out? Where's the info on that? You need to go to the building manager in the first instance. So, you know, if you're renting a premises, then go to the building manager and they'll be able to give you that information. If you own the business, you'll be able to contact your air conditioning people and they'll be able to give you that information. And if they don't know, then they can come out and do the testing. What are the steps nurses need to take if they suspect that they've been exposed to COVID-19? So that might be a breach of PPE at work. It might be the case that they suspect they've had an interaction in community with somebody who's later discovered they're positive for COVID-19. What do they need to do? Yeah, really good question. This somewhat varies depending on the state and territory that you're in. It's always really, really important to follow your local guidelines. The incident reporting process usually involves notifying the work place health and safety, like we say, to immediately mitigate any further risk. The next step would be a notification, and that certainly would be, depending on what state or territory you're you're in, either through your local public health unit um, or through your state health department. And so really probably the point to take home there is make sure you're aware of who that is. There you go, nurses. Sarah is giving you all homework. We want you to find 
the port of call that's applicable to you in your organisation. Who is it inside your organisation to report to if you suspect you may have had a breach or you may have been exposed to COVID-19? And we also want you to know who is the authority in your jurisdiction or your state and territory where you can get the best advice on next steps. Yeah, one of the biggest questions we've had with the Victorian Helpline is very much around I've been exposed or I think I've been exposed, what do I do? I just want to hug them all, but you can't do that. No, 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 that's what we're not going to do. Sarah, given that Australia is starting to open up and borders are coming down, everyone's moving around, we know we're going to get um, some increased transmission in the community, we know some communities are going to get transmission for the first time. What are the things that we need to be thinking about as we take this next step in the pandemic, as we go into this period of change, as opposed to all of the restrictions that we've had in place, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, but other places for so long? Look, really, it's about reviewing all your IPC processes, thinking about that hierarchy of controls. Have you got things in place? You know, think about social distancing. Are you making sure that you're maintaining that distancing? Thinking about your PPE, what's the appropriate PPE that you should be wearing based on, you know, where you are and and risk um, or, you know, the phase or um, the level that your uh, state or territory identifies as. Making sure that you're practising really good hygiene, both for you and for your patients. Thinking about, you know, if you needed to act quickly because you are having to furlough um, because your organisation was shut down or something like that. You know, have you got electronic records in place? Are you able to do your telehealth? Those sorts of things. Thinking about avoiding interactions in enclosed spaces. So, you know, that's your ventilation, your flow of traffic. And maybe even consider workforce bubbles. Can your organisation have a couple of workforce teams so that if one team was exposed, your practice can still operate or your organisation can still operate. We're already dealing with a really stretched workforce as it is at this point in time. You know, tired, burnout is real. And so, you know, thinking about strategies to support the welfare of your workforce. Thank you so much. That is awesome. And do you know what? Um, From the rest of us to you, I hope you get back to Bali soon and you can celebrate another birthday. Thank you. That would be amazing. What a lovely thought in the pool with a cocktail. (laughs) I think we're all looking forward to that next holiday, aren't we? Thanks so much, Sarah. Excellent. Thanks, Susan. Great talking with you. Our state lockdowns may be lifting, but when it comes to COVID, nurses know there's still a lot of work to do. That's why APNA's 2021 Workforce Survey is the strongest way for you to tell our politicians what they're doing right with primary healthcare nursing and what they're getting wrong. As a nurse, do you feel valued for the additional hard work you've put in over the past 12 months? Now is your chance to tell our politicians what you think. With a federal election next year, you know they are listening. Visit apna.asn.au and click on the 2021 Workforce Survey link and have your say. And thank you for listening to Thursday's lunchtime edition of Nursing Australia Week. That's the end of this episode. Don't forget to enter our Spill Your Guts competition. And today we were asking you to tell us your favourite medical moment when you weren't at work. So there's good Samaritan stories, please. You can text us on 0417366831 or send an email through to education at apna.asn.au and the winner will be announced this afternoon. We'll see you all this evening. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia Week, a week just for you. For more information, visit APNA. 
at www.apna.asn.au.